My name is Warren Wright. I'm a leader here at GFC, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you today. A special welcome to visitors and new members. It's great to have more body parts. Have you, have you ever wondered what you could do with a third arm? <clears throat> um, a few announcements before we get going. Uh, there is childcare available. If you go out the back doors and make a couple lefts behind that wall, uh, there are people who will be happy to look after your children. That said, we're happy to have them in the service with us. We enjoy them being here, but if you need that service, it's available to you. And then there's a room right over there for mothers and babies. And lastly, in order to participate, you need three things. You need a Bible, a pen, and an outline. You should have found outlines on your seats. If you need any or all of those, raise your hand and someone will bring it to you. So just pick your hand up and someone will bring you a Bible, a pen, or an outline. All right. Bibles, pens, and outlines. Kind of sounds like the things you need for class, right? Like textbooks, pens, and a notebook. So, speaking of class, who remembers their first day at school? Their first day at school. The first day you were separated from your family and everything that was routine. The first day you were surrounded by people you didn't know. How did you feel? Was it a good day? When I was five years old, I had my first day preschool, which would, would what you would call kindergarten here in America. And I don't remember the specifics. I was five, after all. But I, I do remember being very scared, perhaps scared of the unknown, unknown people, unknown places. Will I know what to do? Will anybody like me? But being five, I wasn't really able to articulate these fears. All I knew is that I did not want to be separated from my family. You see, I was told that I would be dropped off at school, and then after school, my mother would pick me up. But in between, I'd be separated from my family. Now, my mother was a little concerned because I was kind of nervous, really afraid, and I wasn't a very fearful child, and I was displaying above normal concern for something. She kept trying to reassure me that I will see her again. She will pick me up after school. So with all that in my mind, I'm about to get dropped off at school and uh, about to say goodbye to my mother. And I turn to her and I say, Mom, how long am I going to be in school? <laughs> and she says, well, about, you know, school takes about 12 years. And I say, <laughs> Mom, will you remember to pick me up in 12 years? <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. That's probably what my mother did. Um, <laughs> She finally understood why I had been so afraid. And she was able to comfort me and tell me, no, I will see you in a few hours, not in 12 years. And that was tremendously comforting. <laughs> now, I didn't want to be separated from my family. And she comforted me that the separation would be short. Today, we are going to be reading a passage about how the disciples are really sad and confused. We're going to be reading a passage about how they have separation and anxiety because Jesus is leaving. The title of today's sermon is Jesus is Our Comfort. And we'll see how the disciples are sad and confused and how Jesus comforts them with himself. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, please give us hearts and ears that are open to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, there are many things in life that are distressing to us. And yet, Lord, you are our comfort. Please impress that upon our hearts today. Give me the grace to preach faithfully and clearly that that message might be 
driven home into our hearts and that we might be comforted by who you are and what you have done. May your spirit work mightily in our lives today. Amen. All right, today we'll be looking at John 16. We start in the middle of verse 4 and we'll go to verse 33, which is on page 587 of the Church Bibles, if you've got one of those. Now, the context of today's passage is that Jesus has finished his public ministry back at the end of chapter 12. And then from chapters 13 to 17, he's having this intensive time with his disciples, really just ministering to them just as he's about to go and get crucified. As an indication of how close this is, at the end of this passage, there's one prayer and then he's arrested. So, I mean, we're hours away from it all coming crashing down from the disciples' perspective. All right, let's dive in. So, page 587. John 16, verse 4b. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. <clears throat> I mentioned that we would see the disciples being sad and confused. At the beginning of this passage, we see the disciples are in distress. Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. What things has Jesus said to cause them to be in distress? The first is uh, on your outline, it's persecution. It's kind of what was mentioned uh, in last week's sermon. In chapter 15, verses 18 to 16, verse 4, immediately preceding today's passage, Jesus talked about how their future relations with the world are not going to go so well. The world will hate them. The world will persecute them. They will throw them out of church, and indeed, they will kill them. The second distress is the absence of Jesus, and that's the next one in your outline. The word going is mentioned 14 times in connection with Jesus returning to the Father in these few chapters. And in many places, we are told that the disciples are exceedingly sad and sorrowful at this prospect. In fact, the disciples were so sad that they had been asking all the wrong questions. In verse 5, we see Jesus saying to the disciples, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, this is a curious thing, because they have asked him those words. In John 13, verse 36 and 37, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answers him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter responds, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then again, in John 14, verse 5, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So there seems to be, on the surface at least, a bit of a contradiction. Jesus says, you have not asked, but yet we look back in the couple chapters and they have asked. And there are a lot of opinions about how to reconcile this contradiction. But I think one just has to look at the context of their questions to understand what's going on here. When Peter asked the Lord, where are you going? His next words are, well, let me uh, get them here. His next words are, why can I not follow you now? He's more concerned with being with Jesus than actually finding out where Jesus is going. And again, Thomas is saying, how do we know the way? He's also more concerned with avoiding separation, then actually finding out what Jesus is doing and where he's going. So Jesus is more saying, you have yet to ask where are you going in order to know my destination. They've been more concerned about how to avoid separation than actually caring about what the destination is. And one can understand why. Why are they so concerned? Because there are consequences. And we've mentioned two of them already. There's the distress of persecution. There's the distress of Jesus leaving. But there are also very positive consequences for Jesus leaving. And the rest of this passage is about Jesus unpacking those positive consequences. Uh, we'll get to those in a bit. But first, let's see how these distresses apply to you. Let's try and put ourselves in the disciples' shoes to see why we need comfort. 
Do we have deed for comfort? Is your life in a situation where you could do with a little bit of comfort? Are there any reasons, people, situations, problems, circumstances that make you sad? Let's examine the distresses mentioned already. The persecution of the world. Have you ever experienced the persecution of the world? We saw that the world will hate and persecute, throw you out of church and kill you. So I haven't been thrown out of church and I haven't been killed, but I have felt the hatred of the world. I have been called stupid, naive, invasive and condemning. I have been called a public menace. I remember one time at a dinner table, I don't even know how we got into the subject of religion, but pretty much the first words that came out of this one guy's mouth were, you are mentally ill because you believe in God. But then with great compassion, he told me, but I hope you get better. (laughs) Kind of like a get well soon card, you know. (laughs) What about you? Have you ever experienced the world's hatred towards Jesus? What about the next distress? The distress of the absence of Jesus. We see in this passage that the disciples are really sad that Jesus is leaving. It's a little hard for us to identify with them because we... I've never had Jesus in the flesh with us so that he might leave. But we can identify with them when we contemplate the idea of a loved one leaving. This is something I know very, very well. I came to America in July of 2010. Prior to that, I bounced all over the world. There was about a five-year period where I lived in seven different houses, in five different cities, in three different countries on three different continents and on two different hemispheres. (laughs) That is a long list of goodbyes. Each time I moved, I had to say goodbye to people, close friends that I'd made over those months, maybe even years, knowing that I would probably never see them again. Many tears were shed. And these were flawed, imperfect people that I was sad to leave. What about the disciples? They had their teacher and their friend leaving, but he was also their savior, their Lord. How much more would they have mourned his departure? Do you long for Jesus? Or are you like me, tempted to treat him as unimportant most of the time, and you only get serious when life gets hard, when you need some help? We can become desensitized to our need of Jesus, Jesus should be in that most important space in your life. But often he isn't. And when we put something else there, at best it's a hoax and it will disappoint us. At worst it's an idol and God will crush it and it will disappoint us. My hope is that as we examine how amazing a comforter Jesus is, we will naturally put him back on that most important spot. And when Jesus is most important, we will long for him more. We see the disciples longing for him, and they're sad he's leaving. But Jesus, being the perfect comforter, he knows how sad and confused they are, and he doesn't leave them in their distress. He's going to apply comfort to us. And this is actually a very interesting connection, because the whole point of the book of John is to show us that Jesus is the Savior. He is the only perfect Savior. And nothing less than a perfect comforter could be the perfect savior. Let's look at the four ways that I think we can see in this passage as to how Jesus comforts the disciples. 
The first one on your outline is the comfort of the helper who points to Jesus. You'll see this in verse 7 to 15. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The first thing Jesus says is that having a helper, having the helper, is more advanced, it is more advantageous than having Jesus in the flesh. This is a very interesting statement. Perhaps you've met people, perhaps you are one of the people who long to have lived in biblical times so that you might have rubbed shoulders with Jesus, you might have met him in person. And I can see the appeal, but we're actually told in this passage that it's better to have the helper than to actually have Jesus in the flesh. I think this shows us how important and how valuable the helper is. The helper, the Holy Spirit, pretty much the, the same title. We see how important he is when contrasted to having Jesus. We see how important and helpful his comfort is. So how does the helper comfort you? Well, the first thing he does is he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, these are the things that Jesus has been doing. While Jesus has been on earth, he has convicted the world concerning sin because they have not believed in him. He has convicted the world that their good works were not good enough. Their righteousness was not good enough to make God happy with them. And furthermore, he convicted them that their judgments were flawed because they were not listening to God. And in fact, they were listening to the devil. All of those have been talked about already in John. So the helper is a good thing because he will do what Jesus has been doing. Another reason why the helper is such a good thing, why he's such an effective comforter, look at the repeated phrase in verses 14 and 15. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he will remind you of Jesus. Do you notice the theme? The helper is helpful because he will do what Jesus has been doing. He is helpful because he will speak and teach what Jesus has been speaking and teaching. Basically, the helpful, the helper is helpful because he points to and represents Jesus. And why is that comforting? Well, we are like the disciples in the sense that we also have to go out into the world and represent Jesus. This can be a very daunting prospect for many reasons, two of which, first one being, have you ever asked yourself the question, how will I ever convince people they need a savior? Or perhaps, what happens if I can't answer all their questions? They won't believe me. There are many reasons why one would be daunted at this prospect. And this is why the helper is so helpful, because convicting the world is not your job. That is the helper's job. Your job is just to represent Jesus, to talk about him. What about the second thing the helper does? The helper declares Jesus to us. Why is that a comfort? It's probably the easiest part of the whole sermon because Jesus is our Savior. It's the gospel. For those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is the one who knows how sinful you are and he still loves you. Your sins earned you God's wrath, God's just wrath. But Jesus' love for you caused him to suffer that wrath in your place. Furthermore, Jesus' perfect life and his perfect record are given to you. And thus you are adopted into the heavenly family. Romans 8 verses 1 says, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the greatest comfort that exists because it takes our biggest problem, which is sin, and it solves it. As wonderful a comfort as the Holy Spirit is, there is more comfort to be had. Let's continue on. In verses 16 to 22, and this will be the second comfort on your outline, the comfort of seeing Jesus. Now, in verses 17 through 19, we see disciples being very confused. They end up saying, we do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus, again, being the perfect comforter, knows what they're thinking and explains. Seeing Jesus crucified will make them very sad, and but it will make the world rejoice. But then that sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus used this analogy of childbearing. Um, there's sorrow during labor, but then there's joy because of the new life. And then, importantly, the sorrow is forgotten. And then he applies the analogy, the disciples will be sorrowful when Jesus dies, but they'll be happy when they see him resurrected, and their joy will be unassailable. Now, I love the fact that Jesus used the analogy of childbearing because hidden in that analogy, besides the main points of sorrow going away and sorrow turning to joy, is this idea of new life. And there's a lot of comfort in there because... Jesus' death provides the only power for real life. Everyone whose mortal life is not empowered by Jesus' death is doomed and does not have true life at all. It's kind of a sub-point, but there's great comfort in thinking about what his death accomplished for us in life. So how do we apply this? Our situation is obviously a little different because we do not get to see Jesus die and they get resurrected. But we also look forward to seeing Jesus. Now, it is true, we can see him every day in reading God's word. We can encounter him there. But if we want to see him face to face, we've got to wait for heaven for that. Now, there could be a whole sermon series on the wonders of heaven. And we, in fact, will spend eternity talking about how wonderful eternity in heaven is. Um, but I want to draw your attention to a couple of repeated themes in this passage. There's this emphasis on the idea of the end of sorrow. In verse 20, we see... You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then in 21, we see she no longer remembers her anguish. And in 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Would you like some sorrows to end? What about bad family situations? Perhaps you don't see eye to eye with your brothers or sisters, parents. What about sickness and disease? Do you have to live in pain? How about something we all share? Struggle against sin. I know that one of the most attractive things about seeing Jesus in heaven is that I will look like him. I will be sinless. I will no longer have to strive and struggle against pride and anger and lust. The comfort of seeing Jesus in heaven is that all our troubles are actually temporary. They will be solved when we see him again. But what about comfort here on earth? Will someone listen and help you while you endure this broken world? The answer is, of course, yes. Let's look at the next section. The comfort of Jesus being the key to answered prayer, which is point three on your comforts outline. In verses 23 to 28, we see that prayer 
is directed at God, the Father, and doesn't need to go through Jesus. And this is because the Father loves you. And he loves you because you love Jesus and believe that he came from God. And we also see that answered prayer is prayer that is prayed in Jesus' name. So I ask you, can you see that Jesus is central to answered prayer? It is your love of him, your belief in him, and your representation of him that guarantees an answer from God the Father. Let me say that again. It is your love of him, your belief in him, and your representation of him that guarantees an answer from God. In fact, here we see the only imperative in this passage, the only place where Jesus is calling us to an action. We are commanded to ask. Why? So that we might receive and be joyful. So we are commanded to get joy. Isn't that a nice command? Do you want to obey that command? So why does answered prayer give you joy? Why is it so comforting to know that your prayers can be answered? Well, I think there are two main ways. The first is the comfort of communication. When hardships come, having someone to confide in is very reassuring. Just think back to my story of uh, my first day at school. I was nervous and afraid, and what did I do? I spoke to my mother. I wanted to have communication. I wanted someone to enter in. Just having someone listen to you is very comforting. The second comfort of answered prayer is just the comfort of help. Someone who will help you to do something or will do it for you when you cannot do it yourself. Someone to fix your problems. What kinds of problems? Any kinds of problems. From doing well at school, to excelling at work, to overcoming bad relationships, coping with disappointment or betrayal, struggling with sin. Requests for help that are consistent with the character of Jesus, that are prayed out of a love for Jesus and a belief in him, will be answered by God the Father. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that your primary source of help is God? A way to answer that question for yourself is, where do you first turn in times of trouble? Perhaps, like me often, you turn to distraction. There can be entertainment, TVs, movies, games. Sports and work can also be forms of distraction. Or what about turning to relationships, family and friends? Or do you turn to God? Do you want comfort? Then pray. Talk to Him. Pour out your hearts before the Lord. He will comfort you. The fourth comfort that we see in this passage is the comfort of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. And this is in verses 29 through 33. The section starts off with the disciples now claiming that they understand, they've got it. They're no longer confused, which is a great contrast to their earlier statement where they were saying, we have no idea what's going on. And you see the disciples' focus now is on the fact that they understand. It's on the strength of their faith. Instead of on Jesus. Now Jesus knows this is the road to disappointment and so he is going to steer them off it. Jesus contrasts their supposed belief with their upcoming scattering, which will be due to persecution. 
Now notice that Jesus is not saying that they do not believe that he came from God. Because earlier he said, the Father loves you because you believe that I came from God. He's not necessarily disagreeing with them. But he's indicating that their belief is not what will help them endure persecution. Jesus is warning them about putting their confidence in the strength of their belief. Now, before Jesus goes on to tell them where their confidence should be, he's going to comfort them about the consequences of the fact that they're going to fail. Jesus indicates that their abandonment of him will not leave him truly abandoned. Now, I think this is a very easy thing to understand. If you fail someone, if you let them down, if you betray somebody, and you know that your failure crushed them, how much worse do you feel? But if you know that someone was betrayed and yet somehow it worked out, they managed to survive and they weren't really hurt, you don't feel as bad. I think that's one thing that Jesus is doing here. He's saying that you will fail, but don't worry. God's got my back. Besides just comforting them about the consequences of their failure, he's also pointing to them where to find comfort in loneliness. Jesus found comfort in loneliness from God the Father. So can you. And then Jesus moves on to show them where their confidence should be. Not in the strength of their belief. Not in the fact that they understand. Confidence should be in what he will accomplish. In verse 33 it says, In me you will have peace. Now, it starts off by saying, I, uh, it starts off by saying, well, let's, let's read it in verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you will have peace. You may have peace. What things has he been saying? I think actually that this statement wraps up from chapter 13 all the way through 36, uh, through 16. Um, everything he said up till now has been geared towards their peace, to comfort them. And notice that the peace is found in him, not in their strength of their belief or their understanding or their resistance to persecution. Verse 33 continues on and it says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Notice again that Jesus is focused on their comfort. And their comfort comes from taking their focus off themselves and putting it on Jesus. Your faith and belief will let you down at times. You will fail and you will fall. And your, your encouragement is that Jesus has overcome. He has won the war. Your fight is to keep that truth front and center. So, when relationships don't work, take heart. Jesus has overcome. When your sins trip you up, take heart. Jesus has overcome. When life does not make sense, remember that in Jesus you will have peace. So in summary, we see in this passage, the disciples were distressed. The world was going to persecute them. Jesus was leaving. We see that Jesus comforts his disciples with the promise of the helper, the promise of seeing him again, the promise of answered prayer, and the certainty of Christ's triumph over the world. So be encouraged, because you have a helper who will convict the world and who will point you to Jesus. Be encouraged, because your sorrows are temporary. When you see Jesus in heaven, he will wipe away every tear. Be encouraged, because God will listen to and answer your prayers because of Jesus. Be encouraged, because while you 
may fail and fall, Jesus has overcome. If the distresses of this world or longing for heaven leave you sad, remember Jesus. He is your comfort. Let us pray. Our Father,